0: Do you think life is simpler after you retire? For some, it's actually more complicated when facing issues about health, estate plans, probate, long term care, and more. That's why Attorney CPA Joe Cordell hosts Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors and an open forum for older adults with important questions about their future. Here's Attorney CPA Joe Cordell.
1: Welcome to another episode of Elder Talk. This week we have standing in for Susan, Jill Enders. Welcome, Jill. Glad to be here. And this week we want to pick up with what we were talking about in our previous show. We, of course, always talk about the importance of planning. I mean, as people age, planning becomes more important. There's less margin for error. And we talk probably a little more about planning for your, the last stage of your life and maybe that period thereafter. So this week we want to give a little bit of attention uh, to what might be traditionally called estate planning. That's where you need to have a plan in place to have your stuff go to the people you really care about. But in a way, the sort of story that we wanted to focus on this week kind of merges both aspects right. of that. Sometimes You might call it elder law versus estate planning law. So, in this case, this involves both. It involves some mistakes that a name of someone you recognize, a mistakes they made perhaps in the last stages of the life, perhaps it was just sheer exploitation, and then the ramifications thereafter. So, there's lots of, I think, lessons here. And maybe we start by getting an overview of this story. Uh, with us today, our marvelous roving reporter, Dan Pierce. Is available and and why don't you get us started on this topic?
2: Absolutely, Joe. Thank you for having me. Uh, the stories about uh, Mr. Cub, Ernie Banks. Uh, many of them know him as a you know hard hitting home run back in the '60s and. Uh, Later in his life uh, Kind of became A bit of an ambassador For the team And whatnot. um, Doing a lot of Media appearances You would think With like All of that estate And family And stuff like that That he would have Everything all together You'd
1: assume that A guy like that Would have everything In place Exactly
0: right? and, Yeah All of his T's crossed I's dotted You you name it
1: And yeah. you'd assume There'd be a lot Of money too <laughs> Yeah <laughs> Although <laughs> Although he retired When? In like 71. 71 71 mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah,
2: so like back in the day, what may have amounted to the the money that we think he would have earned may not have been the case, and there might have been some poor financial planning along the way. Doubtlessly, uh, there was. Yeah. Uh, yes, um, but needless to say, he had a caretaker later in life uh, that he had known for the, the last 12 years of his life. Uh, according to the caretaker at least uh her name was regina rice and uh three years before his death in january of uh, 2015 he had or he had changed his will in the midst of a divorce now how close to his death three months three months
1: hmm that three always months. raises eyebrows
2: yes yes and uh it it he basically left all of his estate to his caretaker. Isn't that coincidental? But
0: and he had children too. So oh, why yes. wouldn't he have left it? Okay, I can understand. He's getting a divorce. Doesn't want the wife to have. And the divorce was pending. It right? was yes, pending. Absolutely. It, Right. But what about his children? What was going? Why would he not? That's kind of suspicious.
2: That that mm-hmm. part lends a lot yeah. of itself to the what the wife was alleging at the time that the caretaker was sort of isolating him in controlling him in some fashion or another uh i'm not exactly sure how the relationship with the children was necessarily affected but the wife definitely used that as ammo in the case
1: well and it does fit the classic profile of the sort of undue influence scenario where you have somebody who is isolated They're dependent. They're manipulated. And he also had a diagnosis, didn't he, of dementia?
0: Right. And that really is something, I think, that needs to be
2: looked at. And
1: that was around the same time that this this will was prepared.
2: Yes. And then even after the fact, um, a judge after his death said that he was of sound mind and that the will was, like— Usable and stuff like that, and it, it it's all just very interesting that this case was never fully settled. Because as of uh, September 24th, a judge allowed the wife to challenge the will over the whole estate. Now the caretaker is alleging it's only worth sixteen thousand dollars. So why, why are we all <laughs> fighting? I mean,
0: over sixteen grand? Yeah, <laughs> something
1: tells me that there's there's more to that story. And I think that there are some other assets that are supposedly there. So there's there are two allegations. One is that there are assets that have yet to be discovered and that there were assets that were perhaps spent or or used in some other way, concealed. And, and so I think that that the judge's decision to sort of reopen this or to grant a rehearing on this issue uh, is a little unusual. Typically... When the gavel goes down as – and I don't know that it tells of this case. Of course, you know our firm wasn't involved. Uh, but, but I do think that the judge's initial finding, as I understand it, is that the will was, was valid or that there was not undue influence. I find that unusual that it was turned around later and reopened. Mm-hmm. So I do think that, that there probably was evidence that something was improper. Mm-hmm. But we don't know all those details. I think that they will come out over time. Uh, but but so that our listeners kind of understand this process, initially, whenever a will is submitted to the court uh, and someone decides to challenge the will, this is in probate court. Initially, what happens is that there's a hearing, and the burden of proof resides on the party who's challenging the right. will, assuming that the basics are met. And the basics are very simple. You have to show that it was um, – that was it was the will of the person, it was intended to be the will, and number two, and that's simply on the face of the document, essentially, and that it was properly executed. So you don't have to, to go to the trouble to offer proof about soundness of mind. You can kind of have the, the, the court assume that based on just the valid execution and, and the offering of the will. Now, when someone decides to challenge that, then... Perhaps there is an obligation on the party who is propounding, that's the word, they're propounding the will, to offer some proof. However, if they show proof that those those suspicious elements that we see in movies and whatnot, when we see that – that someone has manipulated this elderly person, got them to perhaps sign off on something they didn't know. Every was lifetime there. movie, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or every other one, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a common scenario, right? So, but if they just show that the that the opportunity was there, that the person was in a position to gain disproportionately, mm-hmm. um, and that there was um, they played some hand in the execution, meaning it could be making an appointment. Perhaps with a lawyer, it could mean driving them, it could mean sitting in on a meeting. it can be lots of things but But once those elements are met, then the burden of proof shifts, and what that means from a practical standpoint it's a big deal when you're involved in this litigation on one side or the other. When that burden shifts, it means suddenly the party that is propounding the will now has to offer proof that there was not undue influence so previously. They were kind of granted the, the benefit of the doubt, the assumption. And now suddenly they have to provide proof that there was. And that's a harder thing to, mm-hmm. to to prove a negative. So in this case, I'm wondering why that those elements were not there initially, and maybe they were, and maybe that was um, something that has accrued to the benefit in this request for a rehearing. Because right. remember, in this case, it's the wife who is opposing this will yeah. because she's saying this will that was created that his death was imminent when this was created, three months or so before his death, mm-hmm. and that it bore all of those those elements that you think would raise a suspicion.
0: What did he actually die of? I know there was the dementia diagnosis, but... It was
2: actually a heart attack.
0: A heart attack.
1: Yeah. So he was 83, Yeah, which, um, not that unusual.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Then how was death imminent? Because a heart attack happens...
1: Good point. You couldn't have known it was imminent. Yeah. Right. Right. That, That is true. So
0: that might play in favor of the caregiver.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the caregiver seemed willing to settle on some level in 2016. The only thing that stopped it from happening was the lawyers for the wife backed out. During the case, like just before they were able to settle the uh, her lawyers decided they no longer wanted to represent her, and her case fell apart, which probably plays into the judge being willing to hear the case again, you know a couple years years you know,
1: yeah i often when I hear that a story like those facts, often it means somebody ran out of money, mm-hmm. and that I suspect that the and i'm I'm speculating here, but often when you hear facts like that, you think. Maybe there was a conclusion on the part of the counsel that there wasn't assets there to get themselves paid. And on top of that, maybe they had a difficult client. And again, I don't know either of those to be true, but mm-hmm. I, I can imagine that being the case. So they decide, they lose interest in the case. The woman uh, perhaps decides to go solo, perhaps to be uh, to appear without counsel. I mean, we don't know those facts, but I think maybe the case died of its own steam. There at the end, so it's kind of like the caregiver is left standing as the proponent of this will. Yeah, right.
2: Yeah, I mean, and for her to continuously state that we're f- fighting over peanuts, there's not that much here and stuff like. I I am very much interested to see what um what the next decision might be. Well, and
1: so another thing that's helpful to know and that could explain the fact that his estate's not as large as we might suspect. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, we're we know baseball players made less money back
0: Way then. Way less, oh, not yes. like today. Not yes.
1: not like today. Um but we know he had some deals that he was involved in, like a what was it, a the Ford? The
0: dealership, right.
1: Ford dealership. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that was in Chicago. Yes. And and he he was he had a number of business interests. That's not unusual for mm-hmm. prominent baseball players to have those. Yeah. And it's interesting that there appeared to be nothing there at the end of his life. Well,
0: he had what three divorces or two divorces before this one, so maybe he lost a lot of assets. I mean, we don't know
1: mm. in those divorces. And, and as a practical matter, I can tell you the way the economics work on that. When you get a divorce, you you kind of like take everything you own, cut it in half. And start from there. So now you can imagine people who know about rates of return and investing, and oh, if I if I receive a seven or eight percent rate of return, I can compound in what um, six set what, like what eight or nine years? No, nine or ten years. Something like that. Yeah. So the rule of seventy-two, they call it. Anyway, so think about the impact on your compounding of your assets over your lifetime. Whenever you get divorced and you cut that principal amount in half.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it has a dramatic impact on where you stand at age 65, sure. 70, 75. I mean, we at, at Cordell & Cordell, yeah, we're a domestic relations firm, but we have this conversation with clients. And, and to the extent they can save their marriage, it's often a better idea to save your marriage and and ultimately – cross the finish line with a lot more assets and probably a relationship that was really not as bad as you thought it was at that time. Often relationships get in a valley. But but sometimes these divorces go through, so you, you do that three times in your life and you cut back 50% on your net assets or so. It Could,
0: adds up. And mm-hmm. it could
1: be a lot more when you throw in alimony and maintenance. Yes. We're just talking about assets. Oh, yeah. They, and he was hit with alimony, I know, in at least one of those previous divorces and probably in all of them, quite yeah. frankly.
2: I'd imagine child support also on top of that.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. So the bottom line is he could easily have gotten to where he was and not have a lot of assets. Yeah. But it is
2: suspicious. It is very suspicious. The Cubs had to pay for his funeral after the fact like uh, they volunteered because uh, the the wife was left with the bill
0: What was that for 35,000? Yeah, it was for yeah. $35,000. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: So she loses his estate to another woman and she has to pay for this bill. Yeah. This is uh not a mm. not a sympathetic <laughs> scenario for
0: no, this caregiver. No. no. But say you are someone that wants to for for whatever reason um, leave your money to somebody that's not a family member say you have some you know hard feelings towards a fa- towards your family for whatever reason and it always seems that when someone does that after the person passes away that will is contested by the family member so what do you do to protect that
1: that's a good question because I, there are there are scenarios and this could be one of them where there was genuinely a very positive relationship. We don't know this this, because we haven't sat in on the hearings or whatnot. But I can tell you that, that whenever someone does want to help a caregiver and it really is intentional, it's not the product of manipulation. Right. And they have, even with dementia, it's a long distance from someone simply having a diagnosis of dementia and they're being incompetent to create a will. Because mm-hmm. that, that's a pretty big gap because the the mental condition you need to create a will is very low, very low. The bar is about the lowest of the bar in the law. And Is that and, right? Really yeah. Hard. It's intended that, you know, there's some things people want, they want to give people the right to do. And among those is decide who gets their stuff. Another low bar, incidentally, is getting married, believe it or not. That would make sense, wouldn't it? That would explain no, yeah. a lot of things. <laughs> anyway. But, but I think that the idea is that if someone understands that the nature of their act, that's one of the requirements, they, they know the natural objects of their bounty. In other words, the identity of their family and their loved ones.
0: And that's it, spelled out in their will. That yeah. They're recognizing, mm-hmm. I do have these relatives.
1: Yes. And the general um, uh, scope of their estate. So they have to have some idea what their assets are. Not specifically, just generally, very generally. So if you think about it, it's a very low bar. So incompetency to make a will uh, means that someone is pretty far along. So the fact that there was a diagnosis of dementia three months or so before this change, um, it raises a question mark. I mean, certainly raises a red flag. Mm -hmm. But it's not determinative. So what about this question you ask, uh, Jill? What about somebody who really does want to give to a caregiver? Mm -hmm. Someone perhaps is there at the end with them. Right. And helping them out. And and we don't know. This woman could have been just marvelously devoted to him. Was entirely Mm -hmm. self-sacrificial. We don't know these things. Uh, How do you accomplish it? And I can tell you it's difficult. But you have lurking on the periphery Mm -hmm. family members who invariably don't like this person. Invariably distrust their every motive. Mm -hmm. And are determined to undo any change in an estate plan that's made. Well, among the things you do is a lawyer can clearly see this storm coming. I mean, I would argue it's a failure on the part of an estate planning lawyer to not have this will executed in a way and all those things that need to be done to maximize its ability to withstand a challenge. When they see that storm coming, I would argue it's a failure on the part of the lawyer to to do their jobs. Because some cases, the lawyer, we know, we know when it's coming. Now... If we've not been informed of any of these things, it's a different story. So I'm thinking that uh, a video, sometimes the video recording of the execution is, is something that I'm surprised that wasn't done. And, again, maybe it's because there weren't many
2: assets. Mm-hmm. Contrary because to the suspicions.
0: Because that's going to cost. To, in, yeah. In having yeah. You, with your legal fees, having this will made up, right?
2: Yeah. His estate, uh, like even after his death, was sued for $80,000. He was apparently getting loans from a woman by the name of Shirley Marks who was pretty high up in terms of uh business associates in the city of Chicago. Uh she she never got her money back because the lawsuit never went as far because she died. So <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> so man, this this sounds like um a lot of expense, a lot of lawyers. And a lot of loans. A, a, lot of a lot of layers,
0: of a lot of moving parts to this situation. And,
1: and maybe there's nothing, there really is nothing there yeah. in terms of the remaining assets. So why
0: are they all fighting?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and we all know that often estate litigation is not entirely about the money. No. Sometimes it's not about the money at all. Right. Mm-hmm. But but it, it can, somebody has to pay the lawyers. So that's, that's one thing that keeps everyone with at least one foot on the ground is the idea that, We've got to produce enough money from all these efforts to pay the lawyers. And it may have been why some lawyers were dropping out. Yeah. So in this case, though, when you think about doing a video, you have to realize it's potentially a double-edged sword. Uh, the video could raise as many questions as it answers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so somebody who creates a video recording where so they— So it It's just— It's not fraught with risk, but it has risk. Mm -hmm. And imagine you have this person sitting there on video, so the lawyer wants to talk to them and say, do you understand the nature of this? Yes. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? Well, that's uh, how they answer the why question can open more doors. Because if, for example, they say the reason I'm doing this, this is a common basis for undoing video recordings and other explanations, Mm -hmm. is the person attributes an action to someone that it turns out wasn't true. So let's say the guy says, the reason I'm doing this is because my wife, who we've been estranged for many years, she's never tried to communicate with me. She's never tried to reach out to me, et cetera. So what if it were to turn out that his understanding of those facts were incorrect?
0: Right, and they had proof that the wife did contact him. You know, phone records, whatever.
1: Yeah, and that... that, and often that you have a person in the middle who's who's sort of fielding those efforts.
2: A lot of times that's children.
1: It could be children. Yeah. Sure. It could be the paramour, if there were a paramour. Yeah.
0: Well, that's what I was wondering. Um, do we know exactly his relationship, Ernie Banks' relationship with Regina Rice? Was she just a friend and a caregiver? Or do we know, was there something more going on, maybe a romantic relationship? But wouldn't that have been spelled out somehow?
1: Uh, it might have been, but I certainly can tell you that it would be relevant, and the reason it would be relevant is there's more opportunity for manipulation if there were a sexual relationship um and and courts would want to scrutinize that uh additionally if if it was just a caregiving relationship and he still decides to do this it depending on the facts but it might give more credibility to it um there's so much um of a tendency to impute to somebody who's with someone at the end ulterior motives and they do have this opportunity so the opportunity really often results in there at a hearing later having to explain what the nature of their relationship was and prove their innocence if that presumption has shifted so i would I would really look, and I would say this among the lessons to be learned here, and there are several <laughs> for for <Yeah. laughs> for us all. Yes. Um, one of the one of the lessons is a lawyer needs to anticipate that this is coming. Um, whenever you see facts like this, and you're talking to your lawyer doing estate planning, you need to bring them in the loop about these possible issues, because mm-hmm. the lawyer will decide then, and and should have anticipated that having this woman may be involved in the process of executing the document present in the office at all. I mean, all those things should not should not have been permitted to happen because those are things that increase the probability that it's going to be challenged and it will be successful when it's challenged, uh, the will. So you can reduce some of those things by specifically excluding from those meetings these people. Right. People who are likely to be accused. Absolutely. And so often what you have, though, is you have – a client who mm-hmm. says to their lawyer look this person's really important to me i want them to sit in on this discussion or i i want their input or they're going to continue to play a role i want them to communicate with you on my behalf so the lawyer's antenna should go up at that point and they need to meet alone with their client it, one purpose of meeting alone is to assess their client's capacity or that's competence. a good idea mm-hmm. absolutely that that's one function but the Just other is is to say to your client Look, in this case, Mr. Banks, um, it can jeopardize this will if we include Ms. Rice in any of these discussions. I suggest we not include her in these discussions, that she not bring you to these meetings, that she not play a role. And we do this to achieve your goal. Your goal is to give her a larger percent of the estate. And if you want this to hold up, we need to take some steps to strengthen it. Then among the things you might talk about is to to have – Others who are there at the signing who can testify. Now, by law, you'll have two. But you can go beyond that, and you can be sure you have people that are going to be available to testify, not just a name with a notary at the end, but people who will be able to talk about the demeanor and testify about the conversation that took place at that time. I mean, there are things you can do to bolster, you know, a vulnerable will. And I wonder if any of those things were done.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's certainly something that should have been considered, you would think, anyway.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And kind of circling back to the point of a video, Will, in terms of uh, exploring if they were to do it, if they were to have done it, rather, um, and its validity to be able to hold up. He was such a public figure that you would be able to cite, like, okay, this was the time of his last interview or something like that. You could see the coherence. You could see yeah, that. There may right. have been events like that. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, there's for Cub fans and for Chicago media, there was no other reason to interview him except for uh, – this was right during Cub Fest, so um, this, all of this was happening during like a base Cubs convention type situation that occurs during the off season, where people would be able to meet with Ernie or talk to Ernie or he'd sign autograph. Like he was such a public figure that his mental capacity for that to be in question, I I could understand why a, a judge may question that allegement.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Uh- now he died of a heart attack, right? Yes. So uh, he may have been capable of doing these events, mm-hmm. and, and you're right; that would be relevant. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, you're from Chicago, yes. is that right? Yes. Uh, and you uh, are, are you a Cubs? No, I'm a aficionado? White Sox
0: So there's no conflict of there's interest there's no conflict here. of interest. <laughs> um,
2: I, I spent years, you know, watching Ernie Banks on media and all around the. He's future. big in
1: Chicago. He's especially. big in Chicago. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think there was a period of time when he was alienated from the team, and and then he they reconciled. This would have been decades ago. Why was that? You know, uh, I'm I'm guessing it might have been a little bit of an ego thing. Nothing against Banks, but yeah. but where he felt maybe he had been disrespected. I don't know yes. that it tells a dispute.
2: Actually, the newest book um, it, it details uh, the uh, a lot of the reasons behind it. Um, it's. Um, Mr. Cub, The Legend of Ernie Banks, and I think that's the title of the book, um, it details how he was never properly paid, uh, like, just in terms of, like, any endorsements or even his contracts and all of this stuff. And one of the biggest things for Cubs in those eras was never being able to go to the World Series, never being able to win beyond, you know, September-ish. You know, they had such terrible teams that a lot of times great players of those eras would blame the team and it would alienate the team. Now, eventually they would reconcile and he'd get an ambassador contract and he'd make a little bit of money on the side and all of that. But as we see, you know, throughout going through his financials, his will, all of his loans and lawsuits, he he was living a bit over his means in terms of a lot of that stuff. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. And he
1: may not have been a great money manager. I mean, a lot of ballplayers are not. Well, yeah. sure. It's the exception to the rule when they really are. I yeah.
0: bet his wife's glad there was that reconciliation with the Cubs since they ended up paying <laughs> his funeral. Yeah. she didn't get stuck with the bill.
1: This is true. Well, so now, there, but this book that you mentioned, yeah. uh, that's going to generate funds. Yes. I mean, there are, there's some, what we, what's known among lawyers is intellectual property, and that's just trademarks. Mm-hmm. Copyrights and other things. Surely there's some residual income relating to that that would go to his estate.
2: I I I would believe so.
1: And, and so th- this book that was written is this an authorized biography?
2: Uh, or do you know? I I I don't necessarily know. I know the um the family was very like open with it. So they he, the author had interviewed not only. Uh, Members of the family, but also right before she died, they interviewed Shirley, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Shirley Marks, uh, the woman who Banks was getting loans from before she died. There's more than one woman involved in this picture here. Yeah,
0: I think so. Yeah, like three women.
1: So, so this book. He had a lot of friends. Uh, Apparently. (laughs) This book, though, is coming along at a time where it's picking up some of this litigation. Mm Mm-hmm. So he died in twenty fifteen. 2015. So keep in mind, this is four years ago. Mm-hmm. So this book will pick up what's happened during this four-year period. Yes. When was it? Was it published in twenty nineteen? Uh, yes. So I think that is probably part of the reason that this is getting some more attention. Oh, we have a they fresh were ruling. For the book to mm-hmm.
0: be released. It just brings more money. attention
1: to this whole matter of the estate and whatnot yeah which for your average person you can't count on that sort of re- scrutiny or that sort of incentive to revisit something that was pending i assume there was a an action for rehearing or a an appeal of this case that resulted in this new ruling
2: yes uh the wife kind of pushed for it and a judge allowed them or her to contest the will so the 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 case is still ongoing as a result
0: well, what I want to know, okay, so the money that would that is generated from this book, would that go to the estate, or would it go to his creditors first? How does that work?
1: Yeah, creditors get paid first. So, um, you know, that whenever you're opening an estate, the idea is to first determine who the proper heirs are. We realize there couldn't be an agreement on that issue. But then once they're deter- once it's determined who they are, you first... Um, you marshal all the assets, and that's the job of the executor or personal representative. They marshal all the assets. They do an accounting. They pay off creditors, legitimate creditors, which means determining who's legitimate and who's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that's done, whatever's left is what's paid to the people that the court has concluded are the rightful beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of ways along that chain of events where mm-hmm. there could, could be and have been challenges in this case. So when we think about what the lessons here here are for our listeners, one of them certainly is, I would argue, is um, don't go through a lot of divorces during your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the single most important lesson here. Pick carefully, you know, when you're choosing your spouse and, and hang with him or her. The other thing is that I think whenever someone is doing estate planning, they often do it Under circumstances where perhaps they hadn't thought as much about what they wanted to happen when they were gone. And sometimes it can be a matter of a period they're going through during their life where they'll make some decisions and then later they'll decide maybe it wasn't a good decision. We have clients who revise their wills ten times. Now, it's unusual, granted, but I think for the most part the basic decisions about who's important in your life should be lifelong decisions. And they, they, they shouldn't change regularly. And I'm always suspicious of when when the person who is to receive the bulk of an estate, that name or that identity changes several times over even a 15- or 20-year period. I think that it's important to decide you know who it is that you want to make decisions about your estate. Unless you,
0: that person passed away and you have to find a new beneficiary. Yes. Right.
1: Yes. And, and that is sometimes the reason. So, in fairness, it, it, there can be a death or whatnot. Uh, but sometimes it's just that kids' relationships with parents come and go, and sometimes they're high and sometimes they're low. And all too often, wills are, are adjusted during a low or a high, mm-hmm. and and they don't reflect that longer-term relationship. So... Really, I I would suggest to you that if you're regularly having to change your will, apart from, as you point out, Jill, a death. Right. But if you're regularly having to change your will, I think that maybe it's not clear to you who those core people are in your life that you can trust. And, And these relationships should survive the ups and downs. Now, in Ernie's case, in fairness, you know, he had several wives. It just we it is what it is. And he had been estranged from his last wife for a while, and we don't know the details of that. We do know this other person came in and became important in his life. Um, So it might have been a very premeditated decision on his part, and it might not have been. And that's one of the challenges that a probate court has to struggle with. So when people are planning for the retirement, it's as important to think about who it is that's going to take care of you or how it is you're going to be taken care of in your last years as it is what the outcome of your estate will be. And it doesn't have to be that the people who are involved in your care have to participate in your estate. And and often people feel obliged that, that they have a caregiver or they have someone else in their life who's important during that last phase and they feel that that person should be the recipient of their estate. And often those are two different conversations. I mean, Ernie, I assume, the... Most important people in his life, from a longer-term view, are probably his children. Right. Right. And you wonder, how is it that they got shortchanged? I suspect this woman that was with him during this period of time was paid, because caregivers are paid. Sure. (laughs) And they're paid and should be paid a market price. And other people in your life, at the end, presumably are compensated if they're professionals. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that people who change their wills because of those people— are often either manipulated or not thinking as clearly as they should.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I uh, but we do see it happen where someone comes along they're important in their life, they're providing this at-home care or even in a facility care, and so they make their way into a revision that writes out a lifetime of people and and those should be questioned. So there there are a lot of lessons here, but but when it becomes someone that we know of in the media like Ernie Banks, you know often that gets our attention in a way that the average person down the street who might have similar circumstances doesn't
2: yeah right
0: and and how do we know that he didn't change his will in the heat of a moment angry you hear of that where someone's angry with one of their loved ones one of their relatives and they go and change that will and the next thing you know they pass away they you know
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and that person is cut out But they only did it because it was in the heat of the moment. How do we know something like that didn't happen here? And he was not not actually planning on changing it back. He may have been mad at the kids. But now the wife, even though the divorce was pending, she still did have some rights to it, didn't she?
1: Yeah, a wife, a surviving spouse, in this case they weren't divorced, they have a right to take against the will. Every state in the country has similar laws, Mm -hmm. whether it's one-third up to one-half of the estate. So this marital share is something that can be claimed. I think that that this spouse, that uh, what was his wife's name, at the, the Elizabeth. last wife, Elizabeth, I think that her complaint was that it was more than that, that there were assets missing, that perhaps she should have been entitled to the entire amount, and that he was manipulated, and that there was fraud. So I think that for her, it was more than simply getting this marital share. Because I have to believe she would have been entitled to that. But since it turned out that the woman kind of throws up her hands and says, you know, there's 16000 bucks and a lot <laughs> of debt, so you t- what does the third mount to? So right. it wasn't a satisfying outcome.
2: Right.
0: So definitely you want to plan your life much better than this. Yes.
1: <laughs> so what can we do with um, – so let's take uh, – we have about five minutes left here. Let's take this time and talk about – what people might do uh, to assure that their loved ones are not manipulated at the end. And I think that those ca- those people who are most vulnerable are those who in, are in some sort of long-term care facility or maybe they're living alone and they have caregivers that are in a position to interact exclusively with them. I think that's really inviting this sort of scenario. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so whenever you do have living loved ones that you're not estranged from – they need to insert themselves in this person's life, and they need to do it regularly. It's hard to have sympathy for people who could have had access. They didn't come around, and so the person dies, and there's this will that emerges, and and they think that that there has been some injustice done here. Then they complain to the courts. But really, they were in a position to have monitored things much better during that last period.
0: And that's what we see all the time in these cases where a caregiver, um, the uh, person's child, is not monitoring their bank account. Um, and if they had been, they would see that this caregiver had been, you know, spending. Yeah. So, and that's a telltale mm-hmm. sign that something is wrong here.
1: And they could call them regularly. They could drop by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you mentioned one of the, certainly a very much a telltale factor, is what's going on with their bank accounts. And to the extent their relationship's good enough where they can say to their loved one, you know, look, let me have a position where I can have access to your account and monitor things. Right. You know, many parents are willing to give their trusted children that access. That means a lot. It means they'll know when something's happening. Even having a durable power of attorney in place and then that authority being vested in that loved one, that gives them access to all that information. And this is a simple piece of paper a couple of pages that can be signed off on and and whenever any of you have a loved one who's living in another city they're being cared for by other people often that's necessary i get it our you know, children are involved in their careers they may be in the middle of their careers and they have the most responsibility maybe that they've ever had and they simply can't be regularly or as often with their parent as they would like so their parent is relying on the care of third parties largely mm-hmm. Fine, have a durable power of attorney in place. Be sure that you can reach in and look at those things regularly. That will give you that information. But, look, there's no substitute to getting on a plane, going out there periodically, as often as your career or whatnot permits, and, and looking for yourself and seeing, you know, what is this relationship? How are things going? Maybe it's bona fide. Maybe it's good. But for anybody to find out about a will being changed after the person's death, I often wonder, how often were you interacting? I mean, was this right. done so so surreptitiously that, yes, I was regularly in contact with my dad. We'll say this in the Ernie Banks mm-hmm. case, maybe one of the children. Yeah. I was regularly in contact with my dad, yeah, 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 and dad deliberately didn't say this to me because otherwise I would know about it. Well, that raises several red flags, and it does sound a little like manipulation where the, the parent – participates in a concealment from the children but i would argue that's t- typically not the case arguably where the children are interacting a lot with a parent they're going to know if somebody talks them into going to a lawyer to change a will because the
0: yes, yes. A- absolutely <laughs> absolutely yes. you would think that would definitely come up in conversation absolutely and a
2: lot of times the the children are on the bank account themselves uh, past a certain age
0: yeah pod yeah Yeah. able upon death and so they would and if they're monitoring their that account and if they see large sums of money Mm -hmm. being transferred out of that account they need to investigate right away and say hey what's going on
1: now let me let me clarify something here though because you guys raise a good point now just being a pod on the account you're right you can add a name to an account in in that capacity and it means that it kind of is a poor man's will so it's called it goes directly to that person but it doesn't give you lifetime access unless you're on as a co-owner which is always a bad idea Mm -hmm. so if you if you name your children on there as simply a co-owner of the account you know sue smith and bill smith that's you've essentially effectively gifted them half the value of that and that has all sorts of implications tax liability etc that's always a bad idea um POD is isn't necessarily a bad idea, but it doesn't mean that you you're an active owner today. It's simply really a beneficiary clause. Is what sure. it is. So, the better way to do it is always do it with a durable power of attorney. That's that's where you can have that power. You don't have the liability. You don't have the other things that go with it. But we're all we're agreeing that the bottom line is to insert yourself, even be pushy uh, for the people you love. In the latter stages of their life, go that extra length to assure you know what's going on in their life. They're most vulnerable then, and that's when they most need you, even when perhaps they're saying they don't. Mm. Now, they have the right to forbid you into their lives unless they're incompetent. But otherwise, they have the right to forbid you entry into their lives. Sometimes that happens. That's very sad Mm. when that happens. But usually that's not the case. I mean, I, I just find that it's where the kids are busy. Not that they don't love their parents. Right. Uh, typically, these are kids who do love their parents, but they get busy, and they're just not close enough. They're just not present enough in some sense of the word to pick up the red flags that I suspect existed in Ernie Banks' case. We won't pick on that or, or his kids do much because we don't know those details, but, but we can say what often is the case, and what often is the case is the kids are simply not inserting themselves to the extent they can and should.
0: And oftentimes the kids are the ones that select this caregiver, and so they may trust that's the That's a good point. And yeah. Very think good point. that, you know, hey, this is a person we know, we trust. They would never hurt mom or dad, mm-hmm. take advantage of them, mm-hmm. and then boom, something like this happens. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, it,
2: it was said that he, she knew him for 12 years. Now, that goes into his marriage. Like, if he's – or if she's that big of a presence – They might not have known that this was going to happen or suspected that this was going to be the outcome.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if she was around before they were separated.
0: Yeah, that's what I wonder, too, and and how well the family knew her.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking so. Hmm. Should we send our roving reporter out to investigate this further?
0: I think we shall.
2: That would be awesome.
1: (laughs) Well... We don't have a budget for that. That is true. That is true. You might have to hitchhike up to Chicago. (laughs) That's fine. You can stay in a shelter there. I'll stick a thumb out. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's nice to know that our show has a great budget. We're highly professionally produced. In any case, this has been an interesting discussion. And I think these cases, while they do appeal to this voyeurism a little bit in all of us, they often become wonderful – sources of an object lesson you know yeah you can take these cases and 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 learn a lot for for the average person so i hope we've done that today another episode has come and gone quickly uh thanks dan pierce our capable reporter for for bringing us this story until next week another episode of elder talk take care
0: You've been listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors with attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Listen again next Saturday for another edition of Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, sponsored by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. For more information, visit eldercarelaw.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.